This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm? How about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes 5 minutes a day. Daily Drip has a special coupon code just for Functional Geekery listeners. If you sign up using the code KEEGREE, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Prior to you with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Scala Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Gdansk, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build a network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for the newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconference brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked in the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. The 2016 Closure Cons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st to the 3rd. Closure Cons is the original conference for Closure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and within organizations using Closure. Visit 2016.closure-cons.org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February in 2017. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisp, Clojure, and many other merging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st of 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at fngeekery on Twitter for a code for 15% off the ticket price. Closure D has been announced it will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.closurede.de. The day before Closure D on the 24th of February in Berlin, Germany, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the range. For more information about the conference, visit BobConf, that's B-O-B-K-O-N-F, dot D-E. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media. I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support.
Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Zishan Lakani. Zishan, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am currently a principal engineer at Comcast on the core applications platform team, working with Sean Cribs. I used to work at Basho on React, specifically React Search, and then later CRDTs with Russell Brown. And I'm also one of the founders and kind of main overall organizers of the Papers We Love initiative. I also, with a team, run the New York Papers We Love chapter, but we're also concentrated on working on the kind of international version of Papers We Love, too. And I got to run into you about a year and a half ago, and that was during the LambdaConf 2015 edition, and got you on for a little 5, 10, 15-minute discussion. So I figured it was time to check back in and see how things are going. And so little background, as you mentioned, was you mentioned you were playing with Clojure and you were looking into some LFE, list-flavored Erlang at the point, because you were doing some Erlang with Basho. So do you want to give a fuller rundown of how you got into software and how you got into Clojure to begin with? Sure. There's, I think like a lot of people, there's always a longer, longer story that you can tell. But for me, I came to software later. I didn't study it. I did a little bit of machine learning stuff in my master's degree, mostly around MATLAB, but didn't really have any core functional or any programming knowledge, let alone functional programming. But getting into from the basics of HTML to CSS and many jobs later, I found myself working in Clojure, which kind of changed my frame of reference to programming as well as going to Strange Loop 2012. That was like a really big year for me. I, I had a was kind of amazed. I had been working in programming on a lot of Rails apps, Python apps, and yet not had known about the uh, the world that was out there for me. And it really opened things up. So I was able later to work on Clojure. And then from there, I think my programming ability got better. I took a class with Dan Grossman, Coursera class, programming languages, highly recommended, where we also did Racket and ML in that class. And it's kind of the big switch for me. Actually, functional programming is probably the main reason I stuck with programming. I, I thought about not continuing <laughs> at one point. So after kind of getting the closure, I kind of stuck with it. From there, I looked into more distributed computation and programming as I joined Basho at the time and worked in Erlang for a while. So last time we met, we talked about LFE. That was just an extension of me getting to play around with different variations while I was also working in Erlang every day. For me, I would say that Racket, Scheme, Clojure are, I identify with those languages a little bit more because I think they were there when I made my transition to actually wanting to care about programming languages. Though I've looked at other stuff since, it was really that time that was uh, changed my life, I guess you could say. And you go to Strange Loop and you get a job doing Clojure. What was that transition like if you were going the Ruby sites and the Python sites and a point when you said, I thought I might not pursue programming, but then you found closure and the like. What was the thing that clicked about it that made it fun and exciting that said, hey, this is actually something I do want to pursue now? Yeah. And this turns later to some of the papers of love stuff. I think it was not right after that 2012 that I, I worked in closure. It took some more time. I had to write some Objective-C and wrote an iOS app as well. But I think after that time, it was I started getting more into context. So my other degrees before I did programming. I had done music and music technology recording and before that a film degree. And a lot of those reasons I got into those fields was the the context. You know, I really loved film history. I really loved music history. And I think 
getting into Closure was kind of getting into the community, which is a great community. And it was also a community that kind of drove me towards wanting to understand the context of which programming and where the history comes from, including what was going on at the time, kind of in the modern context. But I think that community, I, I can tell you the Closure community is very, very good about giving people a path to find where they are and look back with annotations and with places to go. So I think that was the major part of it. Once I, for me, everything I've ever loved, once I get into the context of it, that's when I stick with it. And then I think from there, it's just been a, it's been a process of me continuously learning without having a background in it, but pursuing my own uh, computer science path or education. And then you pick up closure and I'm guessing part of the appeal is that context around it, but as you start picking up the language, was there some of the appeal to the language of Lisp since you said Racket and Closure and some of those were the ones that kind of had that affinity where they're at the beginning? What was that transition looking like from doing some MATLAB or Ruby or Python as you start getting in and learning Closure and picking up these other Lisp and ML from these courses? Yeah. I mean, I think the process, like many things, it was also being around people who were programming who knew more than me. You know, you always learn from people. But I think in that process of learning, it was adapting to the things of recursion first, functions first, these things. For me, I guess, uh, I think people say this all the time when they look at even like books like The Little Schemer and all, like that things can be simpler. For a lot of things, too, I felt like programming beforehand in Python and Ruby projects. And these are not really maybe issues with the languages, but more with the ways you go into things. Usually it was like start a web application in Rails or Ruby or, you know, with a Sinatra API or in Python and with Tornado or whatnot. And that was how I kind of was geared to learn how to programming, writing applications, kind of moving right into applications. Where probably when I first learned Clojure and Racket, a lot of that came through having a REPL there, having the ability to play around with things, to play around with ideas, to reevaluate concepts. You pretty much had like, I guess what people get from like IPython notebooks and all, but you had like a notebook right there with you with the language. And I think that was really huge for me. I think also there was a simplicity to dealing with data, transformations on data. That makes sense to me where think coming from more object-oriented backgrounds or applications that I wrote, you can get really lost in the, how you've organized your interfaces, your classes. That's a pretty common thing. I think when I first learned even Java, I did take a, like a data structures class once at a community college while I was working my first tech job. And I could see people having a hard time because if it's not taught extremely well, the organization of these things can be very difficult. But organization of big application is a whole other problem. There's papers like out of the carpet and others that are about that. But you can have all those problems in declarative language, as you say. But it's something where I think in Clojure, when it hit me, it just hit me that I had a lot more control and I could actually espouse ideas right away without having to worry about things. And part of that maybe is the language, part of that's maybe the community, and part of that's probably also where I was at that time. I think there was a big shift for me when I was doing Clojure and doing work to actually start thinking about what is the model of programming that I'm trying to extend to people who will use it and people who I'll work with as well. And with the where you were at the time, if we go back and you did some Objective-C, you wrote some iOS apps, you did some Ruby, you did some Python, how long had you been doing software before making the jump into Clojure? And with that, were there any transitions that you thought were easier? 
because of your term of experience doing software before, if you didn't come in as a software developer, were there any concepts that people usually said, hey, this is harder, like recursion or immutability if you weren't trained or were trained to think in that way for a longer period of time? Yeah. So I uh, have been programming technically my second year of grad school at NYU when I was working in music technology. That's when I just started MATLAB. From there, I there was not many uh, without a PhD doing uh, machine listening kind of work and not having the complete background. I hadn't really had the opportunity to go into that. So I started with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, kind of built my way that way into doing Python for a little bit. So probably I would say before closure, I had been doing it for other kinds of forms of programming for about five years, four or five years. Though I loved my time and I learned a lot on some of my early jobs. You know, I worked at a the Liberty Science Center in, in Jersey City uh, where we had our own set of machines running. We had our own small data center. I got to learn a lot just kind of trying to get things done. But I didn't, and I think this is a thing that a lot of people talk about. Maybe you hear it more as we move into platform distributed systems that we know now that's more common. But at that time, too, it was like, you know, I was just kind of programming things, you know, hack things together, I guess is the term, but getting things to work, which is a great feeling because you kind of get rid of any fear that you once had. So by just doing it and no one and nobody was there at that time when I was working to really go, this is good or this is bad. Right. I think it's different from being in school or being graded on stuff or working for a more much more organized company from the beginning. So I, that was kind of how I, I jumped in through things. And then, you know, startups and all later where you're just, you do have a mentality, even as you, as you get better, you're trying your best just to get products out and to make things work and you'll handle issues as they come. That's a pretty common occurrence. So I think it was, it was a different approach I had to thinking of programming. I was much more into what the product was going to be or what the application was going to be. And though I still care about those things to some degree, I admittingly I care a lot more about what is it like for this team to work on this project? What are the formalisms? What are the tests that we have in place? What are the contracts that we have for this product that we're going to do, this application we're going to do? So I think Clojure changed my mindset about how I deliver programs, how I deliver systems. And there was a lot of trial and error there, too, I think, when I first picked it up. But it definitely kind of sparked me thinking more holistically about the programming itself. Where I think when I was writing applications before, it was really always about working toward the application. Which, you know, I think there are different kind of pros and cons, I think, maybe to both sides. But, you know, I started thinking less about getting something shipped, which, you know, obviously is important for a lot of bottom lines, but it was getting something shipped, but less about that and more about, well, if we're going to ship it, how are we going to work on this going forward? How is it going to be a thing that we can adapt and change? How do we place things like escape hatches for adding things later or that kind of concept? There's growing a language. I, I wasn't writing languages, but you can imagine like the idea of looking at a system you build is like growing it as time goes by. And that sounds like it sets a lot of the same kind of stage that Erling tries to present you with in getting you thinking about not just putting something together, but how is this going to respond? How is the life cycle of this application going to be around failures and distribution and the like? So. As you make the jump from closure to Erlang, what kind of stuff got reinforced or got changed? Especially if you said we're working in a way of hacking our way together, there's that at just the code level, and then there's that at like building systems that interact as well, I've noticed, with 
things like Erlang that try and push you towards that route. What were some of the things that reinforced and changed between going from Clojure to Erlang? Yeah, I think that was huge. I don't think I really understood distributed computing at all until I dived into Erlang. I mean, I, I understood it a little before. We were working on some closure systems at a previous company and dealing with a lot of issues. I've, I've been working on Elasticsearch cluster, which is kind of, for all the great things that Elasticsearch does, it has, especially at this time, this is 2013, 14, you know, issues with split brain, issues with redistributing shards on Elasticsearch cluster. And I was working on that and and we also had this whole RabbitMQ system in place. Obviously, our, you know, great system themselves, but we started having all these systems connected, these kind of pipelines of things, varying APIs. And I got worried. I think where Erlang came for me too, that idea of forget whose talk it was or something where you have, when you work in Erlang systems, you can go to bed at night because you, you know that no matter what, like if this thing breaks or crashes, it'll get restarted again, right? Or the supervision process needs to happen. So for me, I was kind of scared of that the closure cup, you know, we were writing these systems about worrying about what was on call going to be like, all these things. I felt like we have a, a lot of these issues happen. And then there, you know, I get tired of the distributed system talks with tire fires and whatnot. But there are more issues when you need to run things on more machines and you need to figure out how you partition these things and, and then deal with the innate failure of machines themselves, let alone data correction. So I think what happened was that the move was... I had seen some things, even when I worked on the Readability 2 iOS app some years ago, even we would have encountered this issue of, it's very, I think, New York, or I live in Brooklyn, so a very New York issue to come from is that people were on the trains all the time. We were syncing Read It Later, kind of a Read It Later thing is what it was, and syncing articles, and we had this idea, you know, if you're in the train, you're going to want to recommend and sync new articles, and then when you get out, when you go back outside and you get a connection, we have to make sure those are synced and those are synced in a correct order. And, and, you know, we also had to deal with like making sure the ordering was correct between the centralized servers for the application and what was on your phone. So I had these issues. I never knew how to really express them. I think it was like, Oh, you know, lots of retries, lots of locks, <laughs> lots of semaphores. This kind of thing was maybe how I express it, but not um, in theory. And I think the move was, uh, it was a big reason I've been working on, on Elasticsearch and RabbitMQ and these systems, but not knowing the internals of it, not knowing how these things work, but dealing with their issues. And I think that was the move where I, I started working at Basho soon after that. And great thing about Basho, you never, with the interview process there, it was never about to, you had to know Erlang ahead of time or anything, or, or had to work with Akka or something. So that's where I got to really cut my teeth on learning Erlang and applying it, but getting all the benefits of it. For me... And this is maybe, a, I don't know if people agree with this when I talk to them about it. For me, minus some OTP idioms, and I'll leave that aside, but Erlang core language was so easy for me to pick up. I know some people really despise the syntax or whatnot. I don't know, periods and commas and, and semicolons made sense to me, actually. For me, it was even, and having closure, I think, definitely helped coming from a declarative language. But that move to Erlang was pretty easy for me. Here and there, getting some of the conventions, callback structures for OTP obviously became a thing. But getting used to the understanding of, I want to run up a bunch of processes, I want to distribute those processes, those were things that were, they came so great to me. Uh, having worked with a lot of database servers in land, connecting with Java, that just seemed like a pain point, especially when you're running tests for this thing. So it was... It was great to just be able to think in this way where everything was a process. Obviously, you get a lot for free with the way garbage collection works and whatnot. It wasn't till performance became a thing where you start wondering what you're doing in Erlang versus what you're doing 
in great long tested languages like C++ to hit the sarcasm there. But that came later. But I think if I'm building an application again and I want to be distributed first, Erlang made that so easy. And for me, it was simple to learn. And I think people don't, maybe Elixir is that language for people kind of getting in onto Beam and stuff, but it definitely felt that way for me. And then if you had the closure and the other lists that you were exposed to, Racket and the like, and then you had that little bit of exposure to ML, I don't know how much that helped reinforce your thinking, but when you came into Erlang, what were some of those things that reinforced what you learned in closure when it was time to apply some of those lessons from Erlang as well? Maybe I got lucky. I mean, a direct thing for me in going from maybe the closure ecosystem to the Erlang one was, I mean, minus immutability. I, I really like single static assignment of Erlang too. I think that was even a better thing than dealing with the ability to mutate certain atoms. But one of the things I think in the ecosystem, I, I had been doing a lot of test check when I was writing Closure. Actually, it was the first big project I wrote was a thing called Schema Gen, which had were used before the schema group added the ability to generate schemas via, for quick check. So uh, not to get into the whole quick check thing, but it definitely when I started Closure, test check had just been around and we got to use it because I was really tired of our mocking of API data and API responses. So I got to use that in my closure landscape. So when I went to Basho, I was able to do property-based testing in Q, you know, we had a license through Cuvic, uh, to do quick check. And that even had more things because not only were we just generating data to run tests on and to do assertions on, we were basically generating different states of our model and comparing that to the actual states in our execution path. So we can actually test the complete state of systems as a finite state machine. And those concepts, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of those not having learned it or maybe being in places where they would teach that. Like Those were not concepts that came up in days even pre-closure, like to think of state machines, to think of that. Having no computing background, it's not like I didn't know what these things were, but I, I definitely didn't think about them all the time. And that was an inherent kind of move to things. Yeah, I think the move from closure to Erlang 2 is thinking in data structures, thinking in immutable data structures, but also thinking in functions first but also pattern matching, right? So I had done a little bit of ML in a class I took later, and I was kind of, <laughs> for how simple it was, I was dumbfounded that I could uh, match on the head of a list and then like the tail and then pass that through recursively, matching on the head of the list for a certain type or whatnot. That was obviously based on types. Where in Erlang, you get something that's different on types first, but you have the ability to match on the head of a binary for certain bits of a binary. And and do matching that way. And that's really powerful. And then using pattern matching to match on function, you could just have all these call sites and just pattern match on whatever that function is, is called. But those for me, I tell people all the time, learn a bunch of languages. Other than, you know, when I go to work, I talk at some of the language conferences and I, I enjoyed Erlang Factory earlier this year, for example, because I work in it. But, you know, I, I tend to like all kinds of languages for all kinds of things. And as a person who's always trying to keep learning, I think that's a huge part of this, always be open to those things. I mean, personally, not for distributed programming, but for a lot like playing around with ideas and prototypes, I jump into Racket all the time because I also like the idea of a language that's about writing languages and thinking of DSLs first, which you wouldn't do in something. Uh, you, I've just learned Elixir and you're not, it's not like, I mean, people are using macros. We, we have some in our code base right now, but it's not like a first approach. Just the kind of patterns for how people write stuff. So there's kind of the beauty in all those things. But for me, it was the idioms from Closure Erlang. It was like the ecosystem wasn't that different generally. 
I mean, the JVM obviously is, but um, it was actually those things for me made Erlang easier in, in some ways. The thing that I think I missed that I had included I don't have in Erlang is some of the interesting use cases for data structures. You know, at Basho, we were on Erlang 16, so we didn't have maps, for example. But also there's some other really cool things that you don't see, like things like transients and closure that I think are really useful. There's a lot on the data structure end of things, and that's a lot to do with uh, the idioms on collections and stuff that came from Philip Bagwell, having worked a little bit on early closure and then what Rich had done from that. From the Erlang perspective, though, to be able to have the control over processes, supervision, that stuff is really great. I wouldn't want to build those from scratch all the time. But, you know, I think people shouldn't think there's that much of a boundary. I think it's only when you get into the extreme parts of it where you, where you start thinking about your application performance and whatnot, where then you start looking, oh, I wish I had this or I wish I didn't have that. Yeah. And you mentioned the racket and writing your own languages and some of the other languages that you're playing with to see what you're taking away. And that was one of the reasons I was wondering to start with the comparison of Erlang and Clojure. So you mentioned Racket. I know you've played with Haskell a little bit on the side, and you like digging into some of these other ideas. Part of it, I guess, is the context that you've talked about. What are some of the other stuff you're playing with, and what are you liking about those things? And hopefully would want to bring back however it could fit in. Yeah. I have a lot of friends working on cool programming language idioms. Christopher Micklejohn, who has been working on his last project, and I've kind of generally talked about some things with him there. I haven't had that much time to actually work on it, but there's some really cool, I think in any, whatever your base system is, you can do a lot with programming language. I like Bracket because there are just kind of nice ways to express ideas. So I'm trying to move myself more into kind of programming language design. I'm, I'm not completely there yet, but I've done some type theory learning through OPLSS last year, uh, which is the, the Oregon Programming Language Summer Session that happens every year. I highly recommend it for people if they can take a few weeks to go do that. It's a lot of people from academia, but I was working at Basho. I took two weeks of vacation to go to Eugene, learn from people like Bob Harper and Frank Fenning. Um, you know, for example, one of the things we dived into was different intuitionistic logic, but then also like temporal logic and linear logic. So there's a lot of work going in and around now around things like session types, which are based on linear logic. And that could be, a, I think, another podcast on its own time. I gave a talk on even the history on the Erlang type system that was at the Erlang factory. And I talked a little bit about some work by Simon Fowler, who uh, has been doing some work on session types in Erlang, monitored session Erlang is what it's called. So you have these ideas to how do you deal with distributed messages and guarantees of protocols and delegating protocols if one node can't act as that protocol in an actor-based system. So there's a lot there that I want to play further with. I have been looking at, like, because of Chris's work a lot as well, I'm really influenced the idea of how can we make distributed computing easier? How can we use things under the hood and make guarantees? You know, his language has guarantees about how we can move monotonically because of using CRDTs under the hood of last. And the question is, how can we do big computations, distributed computations, big ones, and make it easier? I feel like it's not just me. I think a lot of people say this, but there's great systems like Spark, Spark Streaming, that do all this kind of work on data. We have all these other systems that guarantee things like resource isolation and do scheduling like Mesos, Marathon, Kubernetes. But to program with these things, it's really like creating a lot of different programs on these systems to all interact together. And that's not... There's a lot of ops that have to be done there. There's a lot of pieces to form together. So I, I wonder how we can create programming languages 
that allows to do some of this for us with only letting us think about it if we want to. So how can we distribute some sort of computation and query that in a way where I don't have to write separate systems to do that or a separate, you know, especially for what I'm looking for, what are the intentions of the applications that I want to write? So there's a lot in distributed programming language research, even from the 80s. Chris, as well as working on a book on kind of the history of data flow and distributed languages. There's a paper I just came by from Google on data flow semantics. So I think we're seeing a lot now where I think we're trying to take what that next level is for how great Erlang is as a distributed language. And there's, there's cool languages like Pony as well, which offer better performance handling in a Acre-based system that looks a lot like the E language, but has a, a huge, great community working on it now. I think we're starting to see that people are thinking more of how can we do this? How can we kind of get past the hardships that are kind of what platform programming is and actually make that a fundamental concept to a language, which, you know, Erlang kind of did, even though it was not distributed initially, that it was, it was so easy to go from to running on multiple processes to them running on multiple actual nodes, right? So uh, I think the next steps is how we can gain performance out of things and how we can make better guarantees. How can we know that if our data is associative, commutative, idempotent, or how can we know that we can handle side effects safely in a distributed way? I think even mutate behaviors for certain nodes along the way, that I think is where things are kind of moving forward. The, the session type work, for example, has Philip Wadler working on this. It has people from Imperial College working on this. It has folks from Carnegie Mellon. So you're starting to see a lot of work kind of come together from all little different bits of it. So it's really, really great. So I think that's where I'm eventually trying to go. For example, right now, uh, like off the presses, I'm working in Elixir. I'm working on a event processing pipeline for this project we're doing. And we're using Flow and GenStage, which is a data processing, usually a pool-driven system that's kind of part of Elixir, experimental Elixir right now. And what I'm working on now is actually we're using the flow computation in a push model, or trying to at least, just a little bit in the prototypes, but actually generating these flow computations for different processing schemes. So depending on what data we want to operate on or what metric we want to operate on, we can basically pipe together flows, kind of a distributed Yahoo pipes kind of thing. I think there's a lot of interesting ways to think about. I think people are looking at stream processing in new ways as well and ways to actually have type structures that work for that. So I think we're we're in an interesting mesh between distributed processing, streams, and thinking about resource isolation and query in a new way. I think we're we're seeing all these things in various things. Obviously, you know, I worked at Basho, we looked at CRDTs pretty heavily as a foundation and, and that's a foundation to LASP as well. So there's a lot of convergence going on. I don't I don't know where it will converge, but I, I hope to be there <laughs> at the point to make something useful out of it. And then you mentioned session types quite a bit. But I don't know that you really dug in to what they are other than just gave some examples of how things were using them. So can you give a 30,000-foot view of what session types are and why you think they're interesting specifically? Yeah. So I gave a talk on this at MoonComp this past year. So I gave a kind of a intro to session types in 35 minutes or whatever it was. So uh, we could put that in the show notes. But I think from the reviews that what Sentence Type is trying to prove is that can you have a better way to dictate distributed behavior? So types are twofold. So if I send a message from A to B, there's binary session types and there's multi-party. Multi-party is really gets obviously more interesting. Binary session types have been around for a while. But even from that standpoint, if A is talking to B, 
A wants to send the message to B. That message might have, uh, you can think of it almost like a map of keys and values. Those keys and those values have types as well. But the protocol itself, that session, is also a kind of type. And what that allows is that B can be having, and where the multi-session party really goes, is that B could be having sending messages across many, many other nodes. But it has to know what A is. And it knows that when it has A, it has to apply those types of model to A. But if I get a message from C, that might be completely different. So what a certain type are attempting to do, and, they try, and, and the formalisms as well try to do this, is that you can kind of almost guarantee, I won't get into using the, the exact naming of exactly once because there's some caveats to that, but you can imagine that the idea is that guaranteeing that when I accept messages, I accept their types and I accept who they are and I know what those messages that I'm supposed to receive is. I won't, you would say that I will reject, I will give a type error, a session type error when I get a message that I do not understand. So we understand this, I think, when you look at type channels and stuff on a per process layer on a single machine. But the idea is now that we can actually develop how these messages go across a multi-node structure across many machines. So the multi-session thing goes is that I think their thing is that they have like a buyer and a seller, but between the buyer and seller is a, a delegate who actually can give you a different price. So the question is how the delegate can also take a message from A, but know how to get, deliver that same message, maybe up with updated values to B, so it can act as a delegate. So you basically start looking at no as type behaviors, I think is the way I've, I've phrased it before in, in a simplest way, is that you're now no longer just typing, this is a data structure, but the behavior itself becomes a type idiom in a larger system. The use case for these things are, are huge because... Even in Simon's thesis, you can imagine, well, you, you, know, you can, in Erlang, for example, which is a dynamic language, he calls it monitor session Erlang because it's done in a runtime way. So other variants of session types actually can use appropriate type systems to define these statically. And there's really good paper research on the static version of this. But in the dynamic version of session types, you can, uh, you know, you basically monitor the lengths of which almost like a supervision tree in many ways, but you monitor the links to also look that A can communicate these kinds of messages to B, and B can communicate these kinds of messages to C. And the entire system can be aware, if you have a cluster of five nodes, that entire system could have runtime typing, runtime contracts, you could say, across what kinds of messages can be accepted or not. And then if a node can't act for those messages, another node can actually take on that behavior, that take on that session, and act as a delegate while that node's down, let's say. So you get some interesting failure semantics there. So I haven't written a system on it, but I feel like there's pretty good things. Uh, the talk I give goes into, like, it's kind of a, like I gave the history of Erlang typing. I also talked about the session types one kind of runs similar, but for session types. We talk about static ones. We talk about some more of the proof theory behind it, which uses linear logic under the hood to guarantee that kind of once-use semantic. So you don't have to deal with the idea of all the same message. You basically deal with deduplication as well and not having to deal with the same messages and, and basically causing your network to reuse messages or resend messages along the way. So there's a lot there, I think. And there are, you know, again, many, many forms of this happening throughout. You see this a lot in European institutions. For example, even there is for runtime languages, there is a kind of library system called Scribble, which does this really great thing of letting you use session types for languages that don't have types under the hood. So that's used in the Erlang variant I talked about. In one of the papers we love talks, it's referenced as they did a Python system with an oceanographic institute 
to deal with data that they're getting from sensor networks and they use session types, they use Python. Scribble's like an annotation layer. So you can annotate these behaviors, these sessions. What are the types that I get and how this behavior interacts with another behavior? So that's pretty cool because what they're trying to showcase is that you can do this in any language, no matter even if you're crossing many languages from Java to Python or whatnot. And the research is growing, growing, growing. There's also the ABCD group, which I remember Philip talked about on this podcast. And you can go further there. There's some really good kind of ease of use ideas there. And there's also a Scribble. I think it's Scribble.org. I forget the, we'll put it in the show notes, but a Scribble website, which has examples of the, of the Scribble annotation language for runtime languages. Okay. And I think that starts to give me a good runtime because well, as you were talking about it, it reminded me of Professor Wadler's episode. And I had heard the term session types and I was going, not putting them two and two together about which ones they were. And so I think that gives a good overview and a reminder and refresher for me and probably a good overview for anybody who hasn't heard Professor Wadler's episode or seen your talks or seen anything about session types. Yeah, he probably explains it way better than I do. And, uh, <laughs> but, and, and also he's, he's the source of it. Like he's working on this research a lot, which is really amazing. I mean, Simon Fowler, who I mentioned, Mondred Sessioner-Lang, is working on a project called Lynx, which is affiliated with the same group. And that's really, really cool stuff. I highly recommend people reading it. And then you mentioned there was also a talk at Papers We Love that was on it. So that conference just happened two months ago-ish now, I think. Something along those lines, right around Strange Loop. I don't Somewhere in late September, early October, I think. So do you want to give a rundown of the Papers We Love conference? Because you're involved with Papers We Love, maybe we start with Papers We Love in general, and then we can get an overview of what was the conf like. Yeah, the conf comes after kind of years later of Papers We Love work. So Papers We Love is an initiative to initially was to get interesting historical papers and newer research papers together and have people reading them and look at kind of creating groups around this concept. So initially it started as an internal reading group and then we started like creating the meetups with meetup.com initially. You have meetups in New York, that's where it started. And the first one did really well. We had Michael Bernstein, this is over two and a half years ago maybe. Michael Bernstein talked about a unified theory of garbage collection by David Bacon and co., and that was really good. It was a small, like maybe 40 person group, but it really caught on. The idea is to, this mission to educate people on, I wouldn't say it's to educate them on necessarily the history, but the context, because we do a lot of papers we love do newer research, but they also do old research. And it's kind of geared to people in industry, though I think we're also seeing it's a really good place for academics to come in to either catch up on things that in other fields or to even talk about work that they're, that they're inspiring to them and their research work. But the foundations were to get people intrigued into the context of what is computing, what is behind these things. I mean, we use people in distributed systems might use things like, you know, might have systems that use things like Paxos. And there's there are many flavors of Paxos or what are Lamport clocks, but then also in language theory behind things like what is the foundation of things that we know of currying, for example. But then it's, uh, you know, I think it's gotten... It's really group, but we, we always have this intention to educate. I never had a, a CS background. A lot of the group that created Papers We Love never did. And I think that that's the kind of the selfish reasons that came out of it initially was to find ways for our community and then our community in, in New York to have a place for people who can lead these things and talk about these papers in a way that you really get a better understanding of the movements. What are the theories? Why are they important? Because I think we lose that context. The computer science history in itself is 
is probably a little lacking even from uh, if you're taking classes in computer science departments at schools. So that's what happened. The first one really took off. It's kind of really what our mission was about. Michael Bernstein has always been a prolific person talking about why you should read papers, why you should care about these things. And he was the perfect person to start with. And then right after that, San Francisco, Inez Sombra, who's a, is a great friend and one of the founding members of this entire thing now, she came right afterward and was like, I love this idea. Can we start it in San Francisco? That happened. And then we started seeing chapters rise up. You know, a couple didn't make it along the way, but then we saw, you know, now we have over, I think it's over 30, 35 chapters around the world, which is pretty amazing, which are mostly autonomous. We do have some basic guidelines. If you go to papersyoulove.org, but our, our GitHub organization has like guidelines for, we basically built the whole thing with a code of conduct first. We have how we use our repository of papers, which are kind of curated papers by people in the community, including those that are used for talks. And then it really grew. I mean, we have a lot of the chapters in the US around meetup.com, but we see ones, uh, for example, the one in Singapore, Facebook works better for them. So they use Facebook. And we have all our current chapters. If you go to paperswelove.org, they're on there. But it really blew up, and it was amazing. I think we've even seen like our Seoul chapter, Seoul Korea, focuses more on like design-oriented papers. So we started seeing this thing where, and why it caught on was I think that it was basically like getting classes for free. And what we've seen, and kind of leading to the conference, was that even the New York chapter, we started to experiment with things. So we started to experiment with more like survey work. So not just like one paper, but what's a survey. And I think what we're getting to, and you see this in San Francisco as well, and many of the other cities, it's becoming more about these survey topics. What are these things in computing that we don't know about or that we want to know more about is really what it's about. And we're seeing academics kind of come in and be like, this is a really good platform to talk about the references in our work and our dissertations and our research. And to see it across the world is really amazing, including uh, Brazil recently and even cities across the U.S. like Chattanooga. It's so cool to see. So what we're working on now is the kind of main group. So it's me, Darren Newton, a good amount of others, Ines Sombra, Elaine Greenberg, San Francisco, as well as a couple other organizers around. It's how we can kind of move forward with Papers We Love to make it more interesting. So one of the things, and make it more cohesive, I think, and one of the things was the, the conference. So a while back, I've been going to Strange Loop for four years, so had Ines Sombra, Elaine Greenberg. We had talked to Alex about some ideas initially, Alex Miller, who runs Strange Loop. And finally, this year, earlier this year, before for 2016, there was an opening to maybe have a pre-conf. There was the ElmConf as well, which occurred simultaneously, and along with the workshop and stuff that come part of Strange Loop. But we had this idea to do a pre-conf, and I think we wanted to showcase Papers of Love in a way to showcase like what we are internationally. It was good because it was tied to like a one-day thing, and we were tied to Strange Loop, and a lot of a lot of people coming were from Strange Loop. That we had a good amount of people who just came uh, for this one day for Papers We Love Conf, and it was you know my first time running a conference. I think everyone else I was with, you know, was their first time, especially without having a company kind of back it. We got sponsors, of course, we had great sponsors, but we ran this thing from scratch, and we had six great speakers, four amazing speakers from academia. And then another who is a computational artist, more just, I would say just an artist. And then the other is uh, Casey, who runs Handmade Hero. He's a video game developer, uh, engineer. But then like our, our four from academia, I mean, that was key. Uh, Justine Sherry was the first one we got. We reached out to and she confirmed. And that was huge. I think once we did that, it was great. And even for thinking about a future conference, we got a lot of rejections, mostly because of scheduling that from people 
amazing people, uh, kind of heroes for me in computing, but they, you know, are very interested in papers we love. Philip Wadler has done a papers we love remote. Uh, he has done papers we love in, in the UK. And what we wanted with the conference and more and more what we're kind of gearing as a international papers we love thing is showcasing our chapters, showcasing the diversity in computing, and that's diversity of the people who do engineering and computing, but also the topics. I think it's really interesting to see that, oh, the London chapter is really into functional programming, where the Montreal chapter has more things about graphics or more things about uh, interesting concepts around algorithms and time causality, where in San Francisco, you're going to see a lot of systems papers and distributed computing papers. Within those communities, things are always updated and changed, too. I mean, the New York chapter where we started was very programming language oriented initially, but later, you know, we had... Thomas, probably saying his last name right, Petrasek, Petrasek, doing a book called Fenderbrand's The Against Method, which is a book kind of that was a rebellion against the scientific method. We've had interesting variations on, on the theme of what it means to be generally in computing, whether that's around synthetic biology or other topics. We're not sold just on kind of everyday what's popular computing, maybe what is tech scene popular computing. I think we, we can branch out. But the goal is toward computing and showcasing all the parts of that. So the conference was a huge success and our speakers really enjoyed it. And I think we tried to run it as professionally as we could and really focus on things like getting a different kind of audience and getting people. I think there's a inherent thing with papers we love sometimes. It's like, oh, I don't read papers or papers seem difficult, but it's not. I mean, it is about the research, the papers, the context, the, the history of computing, but it is more about kind of learning new ideas and having a platform for that. And not getting used to the things you know, constantly throwing you with ideas, even things that you thought were, oh, that's from the 1950s and 60s. It's it's basically not even losing the historical value as well as the contemporary one as well. And then you touched on another topic that I want to make sure we cover for the audience is because I'm afraid that it might throw people off is I don't know how to read papers. I've never dealt with papers. I never did this. What kind of exposure, what kind of experience? Do you need to go attend or even to present at a Papers We Love conference and kind of the encouragement of, or at least the removal of some of the fear about going and checking out to say, is this even for me? Because it sounds like it's something that should be applicable for anyone. And so what does that look like? That's a great question. So it's something we, the team, the kind of core Papers We Love team talks about a lot. So it's, to be honest, the goal is this. There's two things that Papers We Love is really always about. It's always free. In terms of like the meetups, the conference we did charge, but we charged, I think, $40, which it really just went to some basics. So is the inheritance, all the meetups are free and those meetups, anybody can go attend. They don't have to read the paper. So none is the answer to that question. Now, you know, maybe you could say inherent curiosity is the most important thing. Like a lot of meetups, there might be pizza refreshments or whatnot. If you go for those reasons, you know, that's maybe a fundamental issue with group meetings in a lot of these places. That's not what it's about. But, and, you know, I think it's about people learning it. The thing that's, I think, coolest for the IC or the thing that really makes me coming back to put in the work, you know, the, the hours of work that we do put in the papers we love on the side because we all have other jobs, is that seeing somebody go to a meetup, and when I say meetup, an event, I'm sorry, meetup.com, but like an event, they go to it, they haven't read the paper even reading the abstract, maybe they looked at the title and it was confusing. They went, though. They got a little bit courageous and they went. And they heard the talk and then they understood it. Or then they were like, now I can go read the paper. 
it's a different medium, you know, in academic circles where they have reading groups, you read the paper, you discuss it. I think our model is showcasing something new where you can now, there's also a lot of papers that are not pertaining to what you work on or what you're interested in, but you just want to see what they're about. But then later you find something that does seem very pertinent to you. That's when you go, oh, now I'll read this. I have this understanding and I have the video that we shoot a lot of. Not all the chapters have access to videos. We would love that to be a thing, but a lot of the chapters do. And people can go back and look at those things. So I think that's huge. You know, it's, huge. it's supposed to make it where this is not an elitist thing. It's meant to be very inclusive. And, and I think that's also trying, you know, I think Papers Do Love, what we're trying to do is also work on a lot of the other things that conferences have done to get an audience with more backgrounds and with more experiences, people who have programmed, people who haven't. I think it's the hardest thing initially, especially was to get, you know, you say paper, there's not always the greatest connotation to that. And I think what we're trying to do is change that where it's really, you know, you can almost look at it like computer science history, whether it's contemporary or past, like club. But yeah, unlike other book clubs, you don't have to read them. I mean, I know in the New York chapter, we always say, you know, definitely don't read them. And I know the other chapters follow suit. So I think that's a key thing. I think more people, people who haven't gotten the papers we love, and we see it when maybe somebody gives a conference talk where they mention papers we love, and then people are like, I never heard of this, or I knew I had one, but I was afraid of going. And I think what we're trying to push is the community is really together on this one. We appreciate new people in the community with completely different life experiences and different backgrounds. It's great when we see people from a graphics community come to a talk that involves maybe something about processing, but it's you know maybe on GPUs or whatnot. Or you get people, a graphics talk where you have people coming in from language side of things. And I think once we start realizing that computing is not about factions, but about this kind of universality of it, like we think of the universality of a, the land of calculus, you can imagine the universe have computing in general. And that's, I think what we're striving for, it, you know, sounds super huge. And we try to make it work bit by bit. And, you know, the organizers who put together every event, are the best because they do it. They do it for free. They do it because they care about their community. The organizers who do that are, to me, like what you would call real heroes because what they're doing is trying to uh, promote free education. And really what at Papers We Love is an education initiative. And it's things that I started because a few of us felt like those things were lacking. But now seeing academia come in and see how they can approach a different kind of audience. Uh, that's usually the questions we get when we have academics come in initially. But they're seeing an audience who might use their eventual research as a practical system or concept. They see people who would have ideas about how their research might not work for people in practice. And they also, you know, other uh, forms of ways where even those researchers or, or people who are in the industry who research, they actually maybe haven't looked at another paper. They haven't looked at a thing that seems akin or they can take value or reference from. I think what we're trying to see is that there's less differences. There's more things shared than ever. And I, I think that's what we're most trying to promote. So yeah, no need to have a background. It just go to one, go to one in your local community. And I think if you had any fear before, you'll be surprised. We push our organizers to be as open as possible. And that's part of our code of conduct as well. But I think the communities are really good. And the more we see people come to it, the more they start going, oh, I, this is actually what I've been looking for that I haven't had. And people want to even take papers we love concepts and bring it back to work and have like a work group that's around similar ideas. So we've seen that even in Google New York, for example. And you mentioned the videos are online for a few of the meeting groups. And so that would be something that people could check out and see if that format is something that would turn them 
away from it or not. So, right? Or I should say, and they can see that the format and get a taste of what a meeting is like. Yeah, uh, well, I think from the from the speaker thing, I mean, actually, the question I did not answer you asked was, what is it like to be a speaker? Well, a lot of it is usually curated, but, you know, we've done work in New York, and San Francisco actually started this thing, and we're seeing it elsewhere, where I think conferences should have this. In general, like, as organizers, we're always willing to say, if you're worried about a talk, give somebody a, a chance to talk about a paper, about a set of papers. Definitely talk to the organizers, work with them. But also, some of the chapters have taken on this thing of papers you love minis. So we've seen things now where there might be a main talk that takes place. It's like an hour. I mean, it's a whole other part of a lot of the papers we love. The talks are like an hour, hour and a half. Think you can get really rich, rich discussions going, sometimes interactive discussions amongst the community talking about that, even though there's somebody kind of leading it. But we've also seen these minis where you kind of people who are maybe new to speaking but they have an idea they really like, they can take like a 15, 20-minute talk. And that's been pushed in some of the chapters, and we're doing that in New York, for example. San Francisco has done that. It's been really great. So I think that's a really good place, too, to start speaking. I mean, one thing that I can say across all the videos, you can look at even the videos and the speakers. We have speakers from all kinds of backgrounds. We have people from varying genders. We have people from various backgrounds, academic, industry, topic matters. You see that in the videos, and that to me is a huge thing when you can see somebody who has maybe some sort of overlap to you and they can do this. And especially as we move into like doing these mini talks and we're trying the general, I know in New York, we're trying variations on this and so are other chapters where we can make it where it's a little bit easier. Um, sometimes shorter talks really give that to you. Also things like, you know, we've had some interesting papers we love where the authors of a paper, a set of papers are in the audience while the speaker speaks. And that, that's a really interesting dynamic as well. The kind of unwritten rule of papers we love, and not that we really keep to it all the time, but is that, you know, if you present on a paper or a set of papers, like, oh, you can present on a set of papers, but you can never just speak about your own paper, something we talk about too. And that's been really interesting. To see people even like Philip Wilder talk about the uh, John C. Reynolds work or, or you know, uh, people from that origin talking about different kinds of work. Even recently in New York, We had a talk about, Elizabeth from the New York Times gave a talk about the Kalman Filter paper, the main paper. He had just passed away earlier this year. So that was like a really great, she, she came to us and was like, he passed away. I, I, you know, his work is very, uh, very important in signal processing. Can I give this talk? And, and, and those are kind of really cool things too, from a thing of a person passing away and then kind of showcasing their work. So I think the videos give a good definition. I, I really recommend the Papers We Love conference ones. That was kind of us really trying to showcasing everything and, And as, you know, six hours or whatever all the footage is, is great. You'll also see in the videos varying experiments to try new things, whether it's like Papers We Love talks on a whiteboard versus those that are through traditional presentation practices. So there's a, there's a lot there, especially whatever topic you're interested in. And I'm sure we can keep going in on this, but we're getting close to our time. So I want to make sure that we can get in appropriate places for reference for papers we love so people can go find out more as well as where people can find you coming up in the future if there's any other conferences you're going to be at. Yeah, so definitely, you know, papersweelove.org is the key. pwlconf.org was the conference, which you brought up a couple of times, promoting for us, which I'm very thankful for, which we're all thankful for. So yeah, papersweelove.org will do a lot of that. And then From there, you can get our YouTube channel, the GitHub repository, which a lot of chapters are adding their own within ours, or uh, you know, chapter-based repositories. In terms of me, 
as I mentioned probably earlier, we didn't talk too much about it. I, I just started at Comcast working with Sean Cribbs, who used to work at Basho, kind of famed for projects like Web Machine and Neotoma and the airline community. But we have a cool team that is attempting to do some new kind of monitoring, kind of visibility system, that, you know, which includes some cool things about P2P gossip, Hyperview, so interesting epidemic broadcast problems and process compute problems. So if you're interested in talking about those things and you like Elixir, I'm always available for that. But we're, I think, in the, uh, there's no, you know, holidays are kind of coming up, so I don't have anything on the horizon too much. But I think Sean and I and team are, are looking to do a lot more in the next year. I think we're wanting to eventually open source some of our work that we're doing, and I think it'll be pretty cool. But yeah, and then the papers we love, I mean, the chapters are there. If people are in New York at all, I'm always at the New York chapter, and we have a talk coming up at the end of the month, and then trying to do something a little special for December. So there's that. So, yeah, wearing many hats. And then the best place for people to find you online would be? Always a good question. I guess uh, I don't have a website per se. Uh, so I, uh, I think Twitter would be fine. So it's uh, probably easier to just showcase it on a link, but Zeeshaan Lakhani on Twitter. And then a group of us also runs the Papers We Love Twitter feed. Um, which basically that goes to me or to four of the other organizers, and that's papers underscore we underscore love on Twitter as well. But uh, yeah, Zeeshan Lakhani on Twitter is probably the easiest. Uh, my GitHub profile as well is Zeeshan Lakhani on there. So, And I'll get those added to the show notes and make sure to include all the references to papers we love as well. Awesome. Thank you for this, Proctor. Thank you so much. Glad to have you on. I'd like to give a Jan thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And yes, once again, thank you for being a guest. And it was a pleasure talking to you. And as always, we'll probably have to get you back on to dig into some more of these topics. There were a bunch of stuff that I'd like to dig into, but due to the hour constraint, didn't get to go deep enough on. So thanks for taking your time. And as you start getting working on more and figuring out some of your papers we love or even some of your other research stuff that you're playing with on the side, let me know and we can dig into some of these more session types and the like. So thanks again for taking your time. And it was a pleasure talking with you again. All right. Thank you so much. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.